You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 117, and we are talking about 1985's Into the Night. And we are again welcoming Dustin Morrow and Lisa Molinelli to help us break this movie down and talk about it. Please listen to last week's episode so that you get the hint for the month, as well as you get to hear about Dustin and Lisa and their accomplishments, their many accomplishments. <laughs> the director is John Landis, who also did in 1980 Blues Brothers, 83 Twilight Zone, 86 A Big Hit for Mike and I, Three Amigos, and 88 Coming to America. It stars Jeff Goldblum, Michelle Pfeiffer, Dan Aykroyd, and a bunch of cameos. The DP was Robert Painter, who in 81 did American Werewolf in London. In 83, Trading Places. 84, A Departure with Muppets Take Manhattan. <laughs> and um, also in 83, he shot the Thriller video. How do you like All of Muppets? that Landis. <laughs> All of that was John Landis. Yes, yeah. yeah. So obviously they have a, a they relationship. Have a thing, yeah. The writer is Ron Coslow, and I don't have anything listed, so I don't know what his previous... Ron Coslow um, was also, like last week's episode, like a young... I think he might have even been a film student when he wrote this, but he went on to create the show Beauty and the Beast with Linda oh. Hamilton and Ron Perlman. Yeah. Oh! Yeah, and he did another show that uh, after that that was a huge hit. Psych, maybe it was him. Oh, I can't wow. Remember. There was something oh. else that he did. that He, he became a TV guy, essentially. Oh, wow. Yeah. The synopsis for this film is after discovering that his wife is cheating on him, an insomniac aerospace engineer accidentally meets and tries to help a beautiful model on the run from some extremely dangerous people. Ed Oaken used to have a boring life. Then one night he met Diana. Now Ed's having trouble staying alive. That's a little wordy, but it kind of gets you where you need to go. And then it says a dangerous comedy. And then, oh, here we go. And then the other one, this was common. It's I feel. a dangerous romance. <laughs> yeah. That's what they call it. Oh. Yeah. It says it right on the poster. A dangerous yeah. oh. romance. Wow. Oh, that's yeah. the Which next one. Which is much after. better than dangerous it's a great, comedy. It's yes. A great yes. And then very common, I feel like in the 80s, from John Landis, the maker of Blues Brothers, oh. an American <laughs> werewolf in London in trading places. In Appeal to authority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Mike, why don't you kick us off with your pickup line? You want some coffee? And that's from his wife, which is interesting that since he's an insomniac and you associate coffee with caffeine and keeping you awake. But it looks like they're at their morning breakfast. They are at the morning. Yeah. And they're starting Um, the day. And so you can argue perhaps it kind of sets up the rest of the film because he's awake all night. But it kicks off such a, once again, like you were talking about the tone of the 80s. Because it's like everyone's playing their role, kind of, mm, mm-hmm. in this superficial kind of way, like where you wake up and you do it again. Yeah. His wife like, certainly they, does. They, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Like, there's like a detachment almost. But mm-hmm. then, does she blurt out that she's having an affair? Sorry. No. I apologize he, he, uh, for my I believe memory. He, he, it's the classic, he forgot something and he comes home. Yeah. And, and so, you had mentioned earlier screwball comedy. And so, I feel like this is, in some sense one of those Hollywood shorthands where you get your lover 
waiting around the block. And so as soon as the husband leaves for work, two minutes later, the, the, the guy pulls up in the, in the Cadillac. How could he, this go wrong? Yeah. Like, he'll never turn around and come back for his lunch. I just, it was, that, that to me was like a very of an era. Yeah. Kind of. that, But that was his discovery. He saw the Cadillac at the curb. Yes. And then went tearing in to find them together. So oh, you yeah. mentioned screwball comedy. And I'm curious, in your opinion, if this Michelle Pfeiffer character, who is it, Diana, I think it's her name, mm-hmm. if she kind of qualifies in that same category as uh, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl from Garden State with Natalie Portman, where they're a little bit like there's some some they, they said they commit misdemeanors frequently, but not never felonies. And they're <laughs> and they're kind of crazy. And they take this guy who is super uptight and they knock him out of his his rut. So I was curious if you thought that, because I uh, figured in the movie we talked about previously, there wasn't a strong female through line love interest. There are many, and they kind of served a little different roles. But here, what did you feel that her role, that character in the film? Yeah, Lisa and I just talked we about literally, this when, we, yeah, we just when we just movie. watched this movie yeah. again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll let you speak to it. Oh, gosh. I'm trying to remember what we said. Um, well, what, did, what did you think? I think... There's some manic pixie dream girl, but I I come back to that word nightmare, which I think we talked about yeah. last week. I mean, she's delightful, but she's also kind of a nightmare. So I guess I think of her more as like a nightmare dream girl. In a way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not speaking to it very well. She's, what did we? Yeah, I mean, she's a little spacey. This? Yeah, and mm-hmm. she's definitely more damaged goods yeah. than than your average manic pixie dream yeah. girl. Um, I guess I yeah, didn't, I mean, there's a, yeah. there's definitely, it's, you could, if you were doing a manic pixie dream girl uh, archeological <laughs> expedition, like this is definitely one of the skeletons right. you, would, yeah. you would unearth, right? I guess like I she's, an, she's an early, un, unperfect right. prototype she's a, for right. that form. I guess I didn't yeah. think she was 100% one because she is such a pain. Like she she's really, I mean, she's getting him into trouble and she's always like oh just one more thing just one more thing that was one thing I noticed watching it this time around that she's always like can you just do one more thing for me just yeah. one more thing just one more mm-hmm. thing Threat she's more in line with I would look backwards before I would look forwards yeah, to like Garden thing. State I would look more mm-hmm. to like Carol Lombard yes. or like yeah. you know like Bringing Up Baby or uh, It Happened One Night or yeah. mm-hmm. some of the more classic screwball comedies that word screwball this, I think works yeah. really well for her here definitely yeah yeah. I think his character almost frustrated me more than like last week's Paul's character because like you said she kept asking him so he had a moment where he could go no I'm going home. Right. I'm leaving. Right. And he kept kind of going so just it was just like thing. stop. Okay. You're just but, but I'm actually yeah, I'm going to disagree okay. because we've established that he's an engineer and mm-hmm. we've also established that Michelle Pfeiffer is really hot looking. So <laughs> his wife was stepping out on him. I, yeah. I, I I could see him a la Griffin Dunn's character in After Hours. He's chasing a little nookie and he's going to do a lot to get there. Well, and I'm going to be the dream girl again here <laughs> by saying I, this is another one of those movies where there is that moment where he falls asleep at his desk and you're like, has he woken up or is he? I mean, I think. This movie is less surreal than last week's movie, so right. I think in the end you come around it. But I, you do have that moment, I think, or I did, where I was like, is he still asleep? Did everyone just clock that Lisa just called herself a dream girl? <laughs> well, yeah. I meant the, the girl who brings yeah. up the dream dreams girl. all the time, which is 
But That's right. You're my dream girl. Aww. So I do see that, though, because, I mean, first of all, they've established that he doesn't sleep much. So there's right. that aspect of it. Yep. But I would argue that it is also a little bit surreal, but in kind of a different way. Mm-hmm. The um, Landis himself was one of the, the terrorists. Yep. And the way they're portrayed seems kind of more slapstick. Oh, yeah. Right. And so that, to me, almost felt dreamlike mm-hmm. in that. It was kind of so ludicrous and over the top. Yes. So let's go big picture here yeah. for yeah. a moment. So it's a movie about a, a, an insomniac who is very dissatisfied with his life and feels really adrift. And I think the key line from the first act of the movie, he's, going, he's driving to work with uh, his coworker, Dan Aykroyd. And he turns to him and says, he says I don't know. I, I can't make sense of my life anymore. He's like, I feel like I'm an alien. Mm-hmm. Like he does, like he's outside of his own body. And and so I think that explains the sort of dead faced stare that Goldblum has through this whole movie. Yes. He really like he's lost the ability to fulfill to feel sensation. I think he's profoundly depressed. I mean, that's what depression is, right? Mm-hmm. It's that it's numbness. And he has that numbness. And so the movie the easier version of this movie that Landis could have made um, would be to introduce the manic pixie dream girl in the form of Michelle Pfeiffer, who's like in the middle of this convoluted diamond caper, which really doesn't even matter to the storyline. <laughs> um, but but is there to pull him into this kind of nightmare experience over the course of one long night um, where he tangles with all of these colorful characters, David Bowie and Carl Perkins mm-hmm. yeah. and all these famous directors yeah. and the and the four kind of Keystone Cops um, Iranian villains yeah. that Mike was talking about, <laughs> one of whom is the director of the movie. The easier version of that movie would have been like you would have seen him kind of come alive over the course of the movie, like rediscover mm-hmm, life. Mm-hmm. But that's not exactly really what happens. Instead, he's kind of exasperated and not thrilled to be there mm-hmm. and and trying to sort of disengage himself from what's going on through the course of the movie. He keeps saying, like, this is not me. I don't do this sort of thing. I have to go home, kind of like the guy we talked about last right. week mm-hmm. in After Hours. It's, I feel like it's a more interesting movie than the kind of the, the Hollywood version of it, which might be why it had such a really mixed reception when it came out that and all the directors which Mm -hmm. um if you read the reviews from when this film came out they're all negative and the and the critics all pick on the same thing which is that landis cast all of these super famous filmmakers in all these small parts there's like 30 or 40 um really famous directors playing roles in this movie and so the criticism at the time was this was just this narcissistic endeavor on Landis's part. And it's like a big in Hollywood in joke for him and his friends. And I feel like that's really unfair to the movie because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more going on. Mm-hmm. I think he would have done himself a favor by not casting all those directors if those had just been regular actors or no name actors. But they're there for a reason. They're obviously in there. They're in there for a practical reason, which is they're trying to show support to John Landis because he was going through something very terrible, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. But they're also there because there's a under there's a through line in this movie about the artifice of filmmaking itself. Mm-hmm. There's that whole long sequence where he goes to the set of the oh, action yeah. movie and he yeah. kind of he mm-hmm. like breaks a fake wall. He falls into a fake rock 
he tries to make a call on a fake, fake telephone, telephone yeah. and they're like what yeah. are you doing buddy and they carry it away <laughs> so there's definitely like something there's some there's a there's a self-reflexive quality to this movie that's really interesting and that's also part of the movie's bigger comment on los angeles mm-hmm. as a city this movie's often paired with after Hours, the movie we talked about last week in writing about in film criticism, it's considered like the West Coast version of After mm-hmm. Hours. I would actually argue they're pretty different movies, but mm-hmm. um, but I but the basic plot structure mm-hmm. is very similar. Like the straight laced yuppie who's pulled into kind of the nightmare experience by some beautiful blonde. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, I had read that the cameos were. And I don't know if he asked them to show support or they were like, hey, we want to show support that they wanted to support him, that Hollywood was behind him after the um, tragedy on the Twilight Zone. Yeah. So for your listeners that don't that know. Yes. Yeah. So John Landis directed one of the sequences in Twilight Zone, the movie, which was a movie with four little stories making up a feature film. And in the in the um, process of shooting that, um, an actor who shares my last name, Vic Morrow, and um, two children uh, were killed in a helicopter crash on the set. And a lot of fingers were pointed at different people, including Landis, as to why the safety measures were not in place to prevent that accident and the extremely rare uh, occasion arose where they charged the director of the film with I think manslaughter. Yeah, it was a criminal it was a criminal mm-hmm. act. Yeah. yeah. And of course he was eventually found not guilty, but it was a very long, very public trial that had that took a very tough, as you might imagine, emotional toll on Landis. And I think he found out that he was charged um, would be charged criminally three weeks before they started shooting into the night. And so you can only imagine we talked about this last week with Scorsese. This is an even more dramatic version of that, that mm-hmm. something really traumatic happened to Landis before he went in to direct what was otherwise maybe on paper probably looked like a pretty lightweight screwball mm-hmm. yeah, comedy. Yeah. And instead now you watch it and it really is kind of nightmarish. It has a real edge. It has really graphic violence mm-hmm. in it. And it just doesn't play like the movie you might think it would be if you were just reading the synopsis of it Mm -hmm. on paper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I felt like it really captured uh, L.A. in the 80s, right? And so I did make a note that that, uh, this is the winner in terms of bare breasts in this cycle. (laughs) He definitely (laughs) wanted to to capture that at the end of of his oeuvre. But um, just the whole bit where they they go to Malibu and they, how mm-hmm. he li- this guy lives on the beach and, yeah. and and all that and the interaction with with the highway patrol there on PCH and then the downtown and everything it, to me it felt very much like somebody who who lived in Hollywood mm-hmm. making a movie about that and I was curious if you thought that the 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 favorite thing of movies about making movies if that's more of a Hollywood than New York thing. Because I enjoyed that bit where he was on, like, oh, that's what people would do. They would go on set and it'd be, oh, wow, I got to visit you on set. It's a big deal for the, the layperson in L.A. So I'm curious if you thought that was a Hollywood thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an, yeah, and it's an L.A. thing, too. Um, I lived in L.A. for a few years and worked in the film industry 
and found myself very frustrated that I would never meet anybody who did something outside of the film industry. <laughs> and at first I thought that must just be because that's my social circle that I work in film. And so I'm going to meet other people in film. But I realized after being there a few years that that's not the case. It's just that any if there are people in L.A. who do regular jobs, they also want to do film jobs. And <laughs> right. so you just don't meet like every once in a blue moon, I would meet like a nurse and I would be like, oh, my God, you're a nurse. What is that like? What's right. it like to be a nurse? <laughs> and it's one of the re- one of the many reasons that I left it because it felt so, like such an insular community and mm-hmm. it just got so uninteresting to me. More broadly, I just think this is the best of all the movies I've ever seen about L.A. This is my favorite because oh, wow. this movie really captures the feeling of L.A. at night, which is very different mm. from any other city, which is more dense, right? Because L.A. is mm-hmm. not a dense It's a sprawl. It's mm-hmm. a sprawl. And mm-hmm. so it feels L.A., unlike every other major city I've ever been in at night, feels empty mm-hmm. at night. And there are certainly neighborhoods that don't feel that way. Like Hollywood, there's always like tons of weirdos and street walkers mm-hmm. and people out and about. But there are massive, massive sprawls, parts of Los Angeles that just empty out mm-hmm. at night. And he really captures that beautifully. And if you watch this movie, there are no like cars or people in the backgrounds of any of these shots. Mm-hmm. It's just an, it's an eerie feeling throughout the film and i remember on a few times one of my favorite things actually this is really weird but one of my favorite things to do when i was living in la my friends and i would occasionally go down to beverly hills and rodeo drive in the middle of the night like 2 a.m after after drinking and Mm -hmm. partying and stuff because it was just such a fun place to walk around mm-hmm. at two in the morning because mm-hmm. it was dead empty, but all the lights were still on mm-hmm. and everything was really sparkling and beautiful, but there, you wouldn't see another soul for miles. Wow. And and he gets that in this movie. There's even scenes on Rodeo mm-hmm. Drive, right? That's mm-hmm. where he yeah. first encounters Bowie, uh, Bowie yeah. David Bowie, yeah. And it, it's he goes to Century City. It's also just a great tour of Los Angeles, yeah. this movie. He goes to Marina Del Rey. Mm-hmm. He goes to Century City. He goes to West Hollywood. He goes to Hollywood. He goes to Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. He starts in the Valley. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's just a really great You've named look at almost the, the every filming location I have Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just such a great tour of the city. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, That's actually a really good point because yeah. we talked about in um, After Hours how... Uh, it would have been such a big deal for for him to get home, but the actual as the crow flies distance is trivial. If you live in Los Angeles, that that's like yeah. next door effectively. And I, I think if you're not if you haven't been down there, you don't understand the the sheer scope, the distance, because right. mm-hmm. there are very few multi-story buildings, right? The population density, even though there's a ton of people who live in LA, but it's across a massive area. So everything is drive, right? Whether it's it's a, a highway or then a big uh, boulevard like Sepulveda or something, you have to get in your car and drive long distances to get On there that you couldn't yeah. possibly walk, <laughs> right, right? right? And I think that, and you mentioned that it's empty and that's why there are clusters, but I think for the most part, people, you know, you drive in, drive out. And that's why I thought it was good to start with um, th- with him in that car, they have a scene where they're in rush hour, mm-hmm. and it's this crappy little Toyota Corolla 
that was very small. People, I think, don't realize that cars have gotten bigger. Mm-hmm. Even the compact cars have gotten bigger. And then you put a big guy like Ackroyd next to him. And so just that comedy, right. kind of just the imagery of that to show that you're trapped in this car yeah. for an hour to go eight miles, right? Well, and what I love about that car scene is Jeff Goldblum doesn't fit in the car. Right. His hair yeah. is right up against yeah. And that also, I think, speaks to that, like, he doesn't fit in his life, Um situation oh, yeah. unless i'm getting too symbolic here no but not like, at all i yeah. think he's he doesn't that fit car is a yeah. very it's so important specific yeah. choice and the way he shoots that car during later scenes yeah it's meant to look puny mm-hmm. in the landscape yeah. of la yeah and also just that whole we've you and i have talked about this that whole scene on the freeway where you're seeing other people's lives in their car the woman right. crying and eating a sandwich the dude looking at a magazine or whatever you know your people are living their lives in their cars and just like crawling along right, and yeah. um that seems very la to me very i've never LA. lived in la but yes, that seems yeah. very la that his little house under the freeway overpass um i love that because again not lived in la but that to me says oh my gosh we're in la now like but not in a hollywood way yeah. Yeah, it's just one like, of the greatest locations ever. He's yeah. got this tiny little bungalow house that literally is underneath an on-ramp. It's incredible. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, so there's that. And then the presence of the airport to me and the constant mm-hmm. presence of the airport and airplanes I think is interesting. I don't know if that's L.A. or not, but there's something really interesting about that to me that it's ever-present and kind of at the beginning and the end of the movie. Well, he's um, yeah, he's driving to L- he's driving to LAX yeah. to take a flight, but once he gets there, he doesn't get out of his car cuz he doesn't know where to go. Yeah. He doesn't know where to fly. Yeah. So he it's like a it's like an empty gesture on his part and that's when of course Michelle Pfeiffer literally drops Falls, into his drops life out by of falling the sky. Onto yep. his car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did from a production standpoint, my question I made a note of how did they get that footage, the landing airplane footage in 1985? Mm. There were no drones. Yep. So that to me is stunning. I don't know the answer, but Good I thought question. that I was that struck out to me immediately. That's one of the things that I pick up on is how did you do that? Yeah, mm-hmm. it was the first shot of the film. Yeah, is this is this POV shot of the front of a 747 landing on a, the tarmac at LAX. It's so evocative and so and it when you mix it with that BB um, King score, it's just mm-hmm. so beautiful and mm-hmm. it just sets the tone for the movie perfectly. I mean, this movie to me, I get why people, I get why people don't like it when I hear that some people don't like it. But for me, it's a, it's an absolute masterpiece of mood. It, the locations and the way it's lit, it's so mm-hmm, beautifully mm-hmm. lit. His use of color, that score is one of my favorite 80s mm. movie scores. The, the weaving of B.B. King with that 80s synth stuff that he mm-hmm. does. I think the casting is phenomenal. And I, I'm a big fan of when a movie can pull off um, tonal shifts, and I'm sure we'll talk about this when we get to something wild, um, for sure. A movie that starts out as one thing, and by the end of the movie, it's another kind right. of movie. <laughs> yeah. And that's really, really hard to do for mm-hmm. a filmmaker, to to start out one way, and to start in one genre, and somehow drift into another mm-hmm. genre, and mm-hmm. have the whole thing feel organic. Mm-hmm. And maybe this movie doesn't do that as well as it doesn't. It doesn't do it as well as something wild. It's a little more jerky. Like from scene to scene, you might be in a slapstick comedy scene, and then the next scene's very beautiful and romantic, and then the next scene is almost from a horror film. Mm-hmm. So it is a little. It pushes and pulls you all over the place, and I think that's why some people react negatively to this movie, or they don't get it. They mm-hmm. don't understand what kind of. They'll look at it and they're like, "Wait, is this supposed to be a romantic comedy? Because this is really bloody and really ugly." 
occasionally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or really weird, almost avant-garde in some parts. And so, but that that kind of unpredictability of it is one of the things that I've always gravitated to it mm-hmm. for. Well, I really think it starts in a mood that reminded me a little bit of Brazil in mm-hmm. that just kind mm-hmm. of, he's just the yeah, drone totally. in the system. Yeah. Very yep. much. Yeah. yeah. All the cubicles, right? You're yeah. right. That feels very Terry Gilliam. And, and they got uh, accurate, the, the, the dialogue with when he's in the room and he's kind of falling asleep and they're like, oh, we need this. That was yeah. accurate dialogue. <laughs> it really felt like he was in this mind numbing meeting. Yeah. And I, and so I thought, wow, that, that to capture that tone again, I don't know what Landis did, but he talked to somebody, he, but he really captured what that I think was like. And there, you, you couldn't obviously feel it, but there's a sense of the oppressive heat to me was you're trapped in this room and mm-hmm. everybody yeah. with their like short sleeve dress shirts and they just looked miserable. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure none of us have ever been in meetings where we wanted no, to fall asleep, not at right? All. Yeah. No. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, he just looks for a tall scarecrow looking guy. Mm-hmm. He looks so small in so many of it, the way it's shot is just so He's such an interesting choice for this movie. I kind of love him in this movie. But yeah, this was back when Goldblum choice. was actually an actor before he started yeah. just doing like variations on Goldblum eccentricity in every role. Like this is a real performance. It's really interesting work he's doing. And Michelle Pfeiffer is amazing oh in my this gosh. movie. Yeah. I always forget how good she is. Right. And, until you so see some. And like Mike was saying, like, Maybe the most beautiful woman in movies <laughs> since Grace Kelly. Like, She's very yeah, old Hollywood in the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, yeah. It's incredible. That's she was a no name. Like, they had to fight to cast her in this part. Like, yeah. you know, she had only really done Scarface and Grease 2 at that point. And so, Landis, when, <laughs> yeah. when they mentioned her yeah. to him, he had only he had seen her on some failed TV show, and he was like, "Really? Are you sure about <laughs> like, that?" Yeah. In fact, I think it was the Animal House TV show. Hilarious. Yeah, oh, it was the Animal wow. House TV show. Yeah. yeah, and he was like, "I don't." He's like, "I don't think so." And they and then when once he just saw meet her, her just lit, meet her, they said, "He yeah. said, yeah." He said, "Once I saw a close up of her lit yeah. by my DP, I was like, oh, I get it.' Yeah, yeah. I, uh, that, and so when you talk about people like bringing butts and seats, right? I think." There, that's a case where I looked and immediately said, oh, that's it. That's that star quality, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of pretty people. There are a lot of good actors. But there are some few who have that magic sparkle. I'm like, oh, okay, that's it. That'll land your film. So I could totally see that casting because, like you said, I didn't. I thought this was like the first thing she'd done. I don't. I wasn't familiar with her work in Greece too. <laughs> Christy may have been, but I, I'm a Greece one person. That's all I've seen. <laughs> so did you? Do you get? Did you have you read about this movie before you watched it, or did I you watch it cold? A cold. So did you pick up that you were seeing famous directors? That's or, a really good or, question. No, no, not until you I read it in the trivia. So yeah, that's what I. Yeah. that's what I wonder. Like again, that's. You know, not to harp on this, but that's where I think critics can sometimes hurt a movie by bringing, you know, the job of a critic in some ways is to bring some knowledge of film to help expand the audience's appreciation of that movie. But the flip side of that is if they have a knowledge of a movie like or they have knowledge of movies like knowing what directors look like, Mm -hmm. then they can actually kind of. This is a case where the knowledge of the critics can actually hurt the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I was saying this the other day that when you told me that about the critics 
not liking that aspect of it. I thought, well, would the normal person who just went to see this movie even know? The only yeah. person I would have Jim recognized Henson, on maybe? myself would have, would have been Jim Henson. Right. Other than that, I would intel, you know, I've watched it with you a few times, which is the reason I know who all these people are. But if I hadn't watched it with you, I wouldn't know. Mm-mm. So I and, thought that was interesting. And in the 80s, were directors as known? I mean, there were some, yeah, obviously. Yeah, totally not. Sure. It, but today, yeah. your average film goer can rattle off, like... Might see that, yeah. yeah might know what they look like. Yeah. They, yeah, and they know what they look yeah. like, and they're celebrities, you know, on right. their own. Hmm. Right. And certainly, like, even if you knew their names back then, you wouldn't necessarily know what they look the, like. Exactly, right. Yeah. exactly. Right. Although yeah. in L.A., would you? So is that, like, kind of an L.A. thing? Yeah, well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's the that's the criticism, right? Is the, Is this a big kind of insider's joke like is this movie made for 50 people and those 50 people right. are Landis's right. friends although to right. your point dustin i mean that's what it's like to be in la it mm-hmm. sounds like if they, that almost yes. la- grounds you more in la because there's all these la people mm-hmm. in it right mm-hmm. although again the average movie cover wouldn't were you that, guys but. aware of the landis criminal case that did you know about the twilight twilight zone tragedy i and did because Oh, well, I remember it. I remember. I, I was down in LA when yeah. that was oh, going wow. on. Yeah. So definitely, yeah, that was a was huge a deal. Story. That trial. So I don't think, uh, you know, obviously he could ever get away from it. That's always mm-hmm. associated with him. When when you talk about Landis, you think, oh yeah, the Twilight Zone. So did you guys think paired. about that at all when you were watching this movie? I no, didn't. Yeah. No, no. And in fact, it was interesting. You're talking about critics, and and so I used to watch the Siskel and Ebert show, mm-hmm. but I actually. Kind of like, I, I don't always like trailers. I didn't want to know a lot about the film. The thing I really wanted for them was the thumbs up or thumbs down. Mm-hmm. A, and so what I think I look for is if you like a movie like this or that, you'll like this one. That's kind of when I'm going into it. I like to not know anything. I want to go in cold. I think that's fair to the filmmaker, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes trailers or, or critics, they can spoil it when they talk about things that and that you don't, I don't, just to me, I feel like you don't need to know. I want to go into it. And we just recently saw, well, I think it's a very good film, a good mm-hmm. person. Oh my gosh. And I was happy that I knew not a whole lot. I had seen the trailer, but I felt like that film worked better. And that if I had read a detailed review, it would have spoiled the film in a certain sense. And so I, I was happy that in this film, I didn't know until the trivia about the direct, other directors. And I didn't really think about the trial and the timing of this until mm-hmm. after I'd seen yeah. it. And then you went, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it very much made sense. Um, like you were saying, the tone that he, and, and just what he would have been going through, I can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah. Going. It's the it's one of the meanest, spirited romantic comedies that you could see. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and there's, there's a lot through. of killing. Yeah, there is, and fairly yeah. graphic. Some of them, mm-hmm. like the. I mean, in the parking structure, people really get blowed up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the whole airport scene at the end. Is, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of blood flying around. Although, yeah. to scene. me, one of the even more brutal ones is when she gets drowned in oh, yeah, the ocean. When like when the they're oh, yeah, chasing yeah, you're her right. in Malibu. They're in that house in Malibu yeah. and she runs out. I mean, that's a perfect example yeah. of the, the really swift tonal shifts yeah. that I was talking it's about. Surreal. Because that scene starts out kind of hilarious yeah. because yeah. The, the four guys are bumbling and they can't catch her and they're chasing her up and down the beach. Right. And they're like these weird yuppies that are sitting around eating like, lunch hey, watching her. What are they doing next door? Yeah. Like, but yeah. then like once they yeah. actually start to drown yeah. her in the ocean, yeah. it turns really yeah. Yeah, I kind of I kind of appreciate that. I, I think that seems really interesting for that reason. It always strikes me every time we watch the movie. Yeah. Um, it's really striking. Well, yeah, it was such a, a a twist because it started out like 
many films in the 80s where you have the pretty girl running through the surf and you're like yeah it's gonna be slapstick and like oh they actually killed her yeah yeah, yeah. They had that moment the, like the oh, keystone oh, wow. criminals Ooh, killed her yeah it's, yeah it's and so it was that that shift and then there's the the bit with the high patrol officer where there's a limo and they talk their way yeah. out of it mm-hmm. that to me also felt very la yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That you could talk your way out of this, like, oh, okay, yeah, all right, yeah. Yeah, right. good to see you, sir, and, yeah. uh, and go about your way. Right. So, the yeah, phone number good. she gives, oh, she's, like, yeah. one, she's, two, she's three, like, what's your phone number? Four, five, one, six, two, seven. three, <laughs> four, five, six. <laughs> yeah, it's so good, it's so good. Oh god, not even a This five, movie five, five. has. Um, I just want to point this out too, because it's just this movie has one of, if not my favorite, single shots in all of film. Oh yes. Which is the shot where there she Diana the Michelle Pfeiffer character has just leapt onto his car and they're fleeing mm. the airport because they're being chased by these these diamond smugglers, and his little car, his little pathetic whatever it is Toyota, yeah. is drives underneath a bridge. Which I remember this bridge. It, LAX has this very strange. Um, uh, layout where <laughs> when you're on your way to the airport you go underneath this you go in this little tunnel and you're underneath a runway an active runway and so there's a shot where his puny little car is driving under this bridge and you see this giant 747 mm-hmm. above it just looming oh. above it and it's just there's just so much like yeah thematic uh, material packed into that shot. Right. I sound like such a film geek, but like seeing shots like <laughs> yeah. that is where well, I just like I get so giddy because it's mm-hmm. also just this beautifully lit. Yeah, it is shot. Beautiful. It's beautifully framed. Well, and he would have had to time that oh, very yes. precisely. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. I think you've talked to me about how he even had to do that. Um, yeah, maybe, I can't remember. Yeah. It might even have been like a, a second unit shot for all I know. Uh-huh. There's no, there are no yeah. big names in that. The actors you can't see them in the shot. Right. But, yeah, it's just such a great, great shot. Great the movie's shot. full of the movie is full of those. It's a beautiful movie, and the the use of Bowie mm-hmm. is great. <laughs> Bowie's he would have been recognizable. People yeah, well, would've. yeah, you would recognize Bowie. Yeah. He was huge. The fight, the the whole sequence where he goes up to that empty yes, hotel I love suite that so much, and he's oh. looking around, and it's he, so creepy. Yeah, and yeah. Bowie's in there, and then Bowie has a knife fight with Carl Perkins. <laughs> Yeah, and he's he's got all those TVs going with yeah. uh, Abbott and Costello, and Costello on yeah. them, and you know the framing of that shot where uh, Bowie's trying to stab Carl Perkins, yeah. and you, then the knife is in front of the television, yeah. and it looks like Bud Abbott is reacting to the knife, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's just it, there's there's like so many interesting compositions, and I feel like there's a lot of a lot of criticism of Landis for being this very commercial. He makes a lot of very broad comedies. Um, and he has a lot of, he does do a lot of really self-indulgent filmmaking. There's a lot of, like, ridiculous car chases in his movie. The whole last act of the Blues Brothers is basically, like, Landis <laughs> playing with Matchbox cars <laughs> right. in Chicago. Hal Needham, um, right, I think, was the, yeah, the yeah. stunt guy there. Yeah. Um, I think he's underrated, I, I guess is what yeah, I'm trying to yeah. say. I think he's a really, regardless of what you might think of him personally, um, I think he's a really interesting, he's a more interesting filmmaker than people give him credit for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that hotel scene. I just, there's like this real creepy 80s opulence about it. Huge yeah. horse statues and like the the food that's all been prepared, but nobody's around. I just love when he's walking through that hotel room and there's nobody there. It seems like everyone just vanished. I don't know. I just love that. I yeah. think it's great. Yeah. And I think too, leaving the TVs on was mm-hmm. it more of an 80s thing 
as oh, like yeah. background noise. And yeah. um, I made a note, and I don't have really good evidence, but I felt like they were slightly out of sync. The, the oh. Abbott and Catello, Costello bit was the audio or, or something was slightly out of sync, hmm. which, again, maybe that was just coincidence with the way it got edited together. Mm-hmm. But that was uh, that was something I, I noticed, and it made it discordant, and that's kind of what mm-hmm. I thought. Mm-hmm. And then it was strangely, like, the lighting of that, of that whole set was mm-hmm. odd. I couldn't figure out if it was practically lit or what. And then I remember drapes and stuff. It was yeah. just, yeah, very 80s. Yeah. Very, mm-hmm. Yeah, I have that more than once. Very classic 80s hair and clothing. Mm-hmm. And then oh, the soundtrack, yeah. like you mentioned, mm-hmm. just to kind of geek out on sound. I liked yeah. um, when we when he catches his wife, I believe it goes silent. But then we mm-hmm. hear um, breathing and I think it's oh, his right. breathing. Yeah. So yeah. so he's seeing and obviously he could hear what was going on, mm-hmm. but it just cut silent. And now we just hear his breathing, yeah. which I just think is great. And then when the waitress drops the sugar, oh, yeah. um, it sounds like a gunshot more <laughs> yeah. than, you know. And so Amy Heckerling, yeah, the director Amy of Fast Times oh, wow. at Ridgemont High and She's any other like, classic Sorry. Clueless, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's I like really those sound yeah. 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 It's a fun movie to watch a second time if you, you know, just to spot all the, there is some fun in spotting all these filmmakers. I mean, right. there are like 40 of the greatest directors of all time are playing small parts yeah. in this movie. It's really So they fun. had to be willing. I mean, he could, didn't, because he, he probably, they all did it as a favor. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like he said, you're going to be here. They were offering up their time to show oh, yeah. support for him. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That's awesome. Yeah. I like that. Did you like it? Um, It's an know. incredibly... <laughs> it's okay if you don't. I mean, it's a cult movie, and cult movies are divisive by definition. So I think of the four, this was. I'm trying to. Th- I think this was my least favorite. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Huh. I suppose probably my favorite. I liked it. Was the was it the shifts? Well, the the weird tonal shifts. I don't know if I'm gonna or... put this in the. I can't. I am not remembering any of it. Like when you guys talked about her drowning, I was like, oh yeah, I okay, I remember them drowning her, and then. I don't even remember the knife scene, but in my notes, it said the knife in the foreground over the TVs in the background. So obviously I watched this movie, but I have no memory. Just stick with you. Yeah. And so yeah, that's yeah. why I'm like, oh yeah, I'm glad you guys are all talking. Yeah, you were an insomniac <laughs> and you no couldn't memory. remember I, it. I remember her brothers and I couldn't figure out where to fit this in. I remember her brother's um Oh god the room, Elvis the Elvis yeah, room. We that didn't even talk hilarious. about that. That was yeah. amazing. I love that. That's so amazing. Right. Yeah, her, and the car. Oh my the, god. They, oh they the take car. the brother's car. I love the car right. so much. What does it say on the, the side? King lives. The king lives. <laughs> the king lives on the side. I love of it. that car. Oh. Yeah. That's so okay. yeah, I guess this wasn't just didn't make an impression, yeah. maybe. I was like, did I leave the room? But then as you guys yeah. are talking, I'm like, like, no, I have notes. So I didn't leave the room. I actually I did like it. Oh, I, I was surprised. When, I I don't remember until we started talking. I'm like, oh yeah, I really did like this film. And I don't know if it's because I have a hard time sleeping, so that, that like I responded yeah. to that character. Yeah, me too. Like I said, I was surprised at Michelle Pfeiffer because she was so kind of just such a starlet that that I like again. I feel bad saying that, but I just I it was stunned by. It. I was like, oh my gosh, this is. So there is that part of it. There were a ton of cars involved. Obviously, Landis is a car guy, which again yeah. oh, comes yeah. back to L.A. That your car mm-hmm. is such a part of it's your identity. Your house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that unlike I think any other place in the U.S., but probably yeah. not not New York City. And I couldn't think of. I was trying to think of an example, like your watch or something. No, it's different. It's a thing all of itself. But it very much that depicts. And you you talked about 
how Goldblum starts in that little tiny thing and he goes to these expansive cars and these more expensive cars right. and you can see there's oh, yeah. kind of an arc there as well yeah, car totally arc. Right. that's so yeah. interesting i didn't, I didn't think even about, thought that. about that but you're totally right like he, it's, yeah. he's in a ferrari by the end of the, yeah, by the, end of the film that's true which again in la that's uh, in yeah. some sense yeah. you're judged by your car yeah. Um, Some people sometimes have a better car than where they live because you're out and about. And so that's how you can show your status. status And then you go home to Inglewood. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) very much so. Yeah, people can be, I guess, car poor, right? They they spend a ton on their car. So I thought that was an interesting part. But I was really surprised. I did like this film, even though, like you said, the, the diamond plot line that was kind of like the briefcase that lights up it's, it's a, a MacGuffin, it's a MacGuffin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, who cares yeah. it, but it's there right. to kind of drive the plot along I also thought it was interesting <laughs> it maybe doesn't play as well now but the way they made the Iranian terrorists that was a little bit broadly drawn a little stereotypical which at the time no one I don't think probably would have uh, maybe except for the people from Iran would have blinked at that but that was one thing that I saw I was like, oh wow like that was an interesting choice yeah. You could never get away with no with it today. Although um, I think that was more about Keystone Cops for him than it was about... Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, what yeah. You, if you know, if you've seen the Blues Brothers or a lot mm-hmm. of Landis comedies, there there's like an absurd level of slapstick in them. Mm-hmm. Like, and they... He designs set pieces around slapstick. Again, like the, the, the big car chase at the end right. of the Blues Brothers. Right. Yes. to the mall. And yeah, that's exactly, exactly what, like what I was thinking. Yeah. Sight gags yeah. galore. Yeah. Right. And... Um, it's it's part of that and yeah they're they they're weird because they mm-hmm. they are really dangerous they they yeah. do they're responsible for some pretty bloody deaths in the movie but they're also a total joke right yeah, there's a part where where Landis himself turns his gun around uses it a hammer yeah. to break up oh, some, yeah, like a walnut some, I think yeah He's just it's like some confection a of some yeah. sort oh, right. yeah. Yeah. it was so bizarre yeah. that, but that You're right. and they're just sitting in the background and it almost reminded me of like the see no evil monkeys, the three of them on the couch. And it just, it was very oh, yeah. much, that was silly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Striking. So that kind of lends us, was there any head drama in this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Serious head drama. Diana falls on the hood of his car. Yes. And she takes pretty good header. And then the other one I noted was the poor actress, Christy, with her character is called was accosted in the surf by the Iranians. There is some yeah. some head trauma there. Well, and a guy shoots himself in the head at the end of the movie. Okay, that counts as trauma. Yeah, yeah I was yeah, more thinking clearly. blunt trauma, but you're I mean, right. Yeah. That is head trauma. <laughs> I, mean, I would consider that pretty traumatic. Very traumatic, yes. <laughs> Any smoochies? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. Uh... Smoochie, smoochie. <laughs> at 56.45, Diana gives Ed a peck when she's saying goodbye. That's all I've got. Okay. On that one. That's so, you know, I, these movies, I wasn't paying any attention to kissing. There's like no kissing in this movie. That's so interesting. Very little. Yeah. yeah just that one just back the one. that I made note of. I do sometimes miss them because I get caught up in the film. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I, I've heard, but give us a comprehensive driving review. Oh, there's quite a bit here. Um, uh, starting out, um, the 1984 Toyota Corolla is about as boring as you can possibly get. It's beige. It's small. It was, uh, at the time, Toyota was pushing their, uh, yeah, but it's economical. Kind right. of very boring vehicle. And that sets up. And then you see the contrast when his wife's uh, Amour shows up. He's driving 
a Cadillac Seville and it's blue. It's got color. Mm. So you immediately can see that difference between there. I thought it was interesting that the kidnappers used a silver Mercedes Benz 500 SEL. That's a pretty (laughs) high end car for kidnapping. Like normally you want something you can ditch. So I don't know what they were, what they were talking about that. Yeah. They are diamond smugglers. That's true. They're well-heeled kidnappers. Yeah. I did mention that there must that there was stunt driving by Goldblum. There are some shots where he oh. was obviously driving wow. and there's That's no cool. way you could have faked it, which is amazing. They also have the, uh, this uh, 59 Cadillac Eldorado, which is the, the Elvis that mobile. the King Lives one? Yeah. yeah. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because it's almost the exact opposite of the Corolla. It's one of the largest cars yeah. ever made, right? And, and it's open. It's a convertible. So instead of having him pinned oh, in yeah. under the oh roof, gosh, now it's just this expansive yeah. open thing, which is an interesting... The, the Corvette says sleazy producer better than almost anything. That was a great <laughs> storytelling in and of itself. And then uh, the last little bit I mentioned was he did, yeah, he, he upgrades to the Ferrari by the end of the film. And that was uh, also showing, I thought, that, that progression of his character... In particular in L.A., right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. There's a real... Pro- I really never thought about the storytelling through cars in this movie, but it's really there. Yep. This is not really about cars, but I did love that moment um, when they're going to get the the Ferrari and the, and the fancy cars from her... Mm-hmm. Um, from her sugar daddy essentially and she asks for the wife's car because the <laughs> wife really doesn't like Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer's character and she's like which car is the wife's car <laughs> yeah. she takes her. I thought that was funny the wife was the great Vera, Vera Miles, Miles from yeah. Psycho and the yeah. husband oh, was Richard Farnsworth and yeah Richard yeah. Farnsworth played Jack there are a lot of great um, old Hollywood actors yeah. in small parts mm-hmm. in this movie yeah. too shall we go to the numbers let's go to the numbers I could not find a budget for this film so I, in my normal websites where I find budget, I couldn't find it. But it did make $6.7 million worldwide. It got a 6.4 out of 10 on IMDb. Critics put it at 40%. That seems really low. That does for, seem low. I think, low. well, again. Well, like you were saying. Yeah, the, the assessment at the time was a little unfair, I think. He was also on trial for manslaughter, yeah. and there. There are a lot of critics that just don't like the types of movies he makes. Like, right. They're not going to like broad comedies. And they. I think there was a lot of animosity, might be too strong a word, but there was some ill will toward Landis in among critical circles at the time. And this is an easy movie to take it out on him because it's such an odd movie. Right. Audiences liked it better at 49%, almost halfway. <laughs> um, it's just under two hours at an hour and 55 minutes, and it's listed as an action crime comedy. Once again, oh, I guess crime. I guess murder qualifies as a crime. Yeah, I suppose so. Mm-hmm. And diamond I'd call it a emerald mood heist. Piece. It, is it has to be very an art. Yeah. Yeah, you'd think so. I mean, I'll say that that's, I think, the hardest thing. One of the hardest things you can do as a filmmaker mm-hmm. is to create a mood with your movie because that takes a holistic point of view where you're thinking about right. how will my cinematography and my music work together? How, yeah. how will my casting and my locations and my cars, mm-hmm. how will these things play off? How will the light... The light um, is, yeah. You know, yeah. The even if you... If you've listened to us talk about this for the last half hour and thought, I'll never watch this movie, <laughs> I implore you to watch the first five minutes um, just because 
the first five minutes of this movie are one of, I think, the great kind of evocations of mood that has ever mm-hmm. been put on mm-hmm. film. Definitely. It's just, it's this, you hear this beautiful B.B. King score. There's this great shot that Mike was talking about um, that starts at the airport. And then his camera just floats through nocturnal LA and you see yeah. all mm-hmm. of these beautiful nocturnal LA locations and it, it, it's almost um, haunted. Mm-hmm. It's just so, it's so ghostly and um, so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of moments in the film that are haunted too, in, in a in a good way to me. Yeah, I, it's a great portrait that. of a yeah. city. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was rated R. Uh, it's a Universal Pictures, and John Landis won the special jury prize at the Cognac Film Festival. Okay. Cognac Festival du Film Policier. Okay. Maybe a festival where everybody's drinking and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, give it. That's to probably him. a good way to get good ratings. Is get them lit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely check this movie out. I think, I think you guys have given them a lot of reason to. I mean, I want to almost watch it again since I'm having trouble. With it's my a movie. I will say yeah. it's a movie that yeah. really, really rewards repeat viewing mm-hmm. because I have seen it several dozen times and I still oh, wow. find new things in it. And there are things that like. Like I never thought about what Mike just said the the whole like yeah. tracking the narrative through cars. Yep. he's totally right. Yep. like there's there's so there's so many things going on in this movie that I think are you're not going to see if you're just watching it as a screwball comedy. Totally agreed. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen it a few times now, and I'm seeing new things all the time. So next week we are going to be talking about something wild, and definitely listen to last week's episode because you will be able to grab that clue or you'll grab the answer of what the theme <laughs> of the month is and join us next week and never forget. Dodgers never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com Subscribe, share, Leave a comment and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 